0: All right. Um, so as not to encourage uh, sloth and torpor by <laughs> trying to meditate immediately after lunch, I'm going to um, tell you some more stories. Because uh, what, what is one of the wonderful things about these teachings is that they are many times based in these stories. And um, I think that that was how the Buddha Often taught, sometimes he told stories about real things that had happened, or, as in this this case, we're, we're just narrating hearing a narration of of something that had happened. Other times he makes up stories and kind of metaphors and symbolism. Um, but as we know, stories are a great way to learn things uh, because we, our minds are able to hold on to those <coughs> concepts. Because they there are these connections that we make. They're not just discrete thoughts or ideas that are, we're trying to, okay, be loving, be kind, you know. But we hear a story, it's about these monks, and they take care of each other, and they clean up the bathroom, and, you know, it stays with you, right? Um, and, of course, that's a very human thing. And uh, I'm, I'm a big, I love stories, and I, I write, I've actually written fiction, and... Yeah, so a little bit. Uh, I'm going to say a little bit more about this sutta, um, and then I'm going to talk about the next sutta. So, uh, the one thing that you don't have in your in your uh, photocopy is the beginning of the sutta, and this is the way all of the uh, suttas in the Pali Canon, most of them anyway, uh, begin. It says, "Thus have I heard," and so the beginning we hear. This is a. This sutta is being narrated to us, and the narrator where it says, Thus have I heard, the I is Ananda, who was the Buddha's attendant for the last 25 years of his life. And Ananda was uh, reputed to have perfect recall, so he heard all the Buddha's teachings over those 25 years. And so when the Buddha died, the, the community of monks asked him to recite everything he had heard. And that, and that's, and then they, all the monks memorized this and they all had to agree on, yeah, I was there too. And that's how I heard it. Or wait, I think he said this. And so, but, uh, eventually they, you know, compiled all these teachings and then they became, they started to chant them. So that was, originally it was just an oral tradition and it was preserved as a community, not just like in the uh, Homer's epics where it was just a a single person telling a story, but it was the whole community repeating these things and that was a way of keeping things, uh, uh, that they kept repeating the things that everybody had agreed on. Nobody could sort of jump in and edit it or change it. Uh, So for a couple hundred years, uh, this material was all... Just transmitted in that way but but I, I also find it kind of touching and inspiring that we're hearing this voice of Ananda down through the the ages twenty five twenty six hundred years uh, that, we're, that that that's where we 're getting these stories it 's not just an impersonal uh, story that they're connected to someone, and often enough. Uh, ananda actually shows up as a kind of foil for the Buddha where he 'll say something, and the Buddha will be like no no you 've got it all wrong ananda and I, it's, I, I never really thought about it until this moment that that Ananda was the one who told people that that had happened, so he, he obviously was also quite humble was willing to to you know reveal his own foibles uh, and we remember them. <laughs> So the end of the, what happens after this first conversation with the Buddha? Then, as I said, the Anuruddha then talks about the monks going through these jhanas, these concentration practices. After that, he says that they have had these breakthroughs, as he put it. Let's see. we have uh our taints are destroyed by our seeing with wisdom, so that's a description of what we would call enlightenment: the taints being destroyed by seeing with wisdom. So, so this what what I've am uh, using as kind of a one sentence description of the theme of this. Sutta is, oh, I thought I had it turned to that page, is sila, which is moral or ethical behavior. Sila is the foundation for concentration and insight. So that that's the story. It starts with just the way they're living, and then it, we see that how that lays a foundation for concentration and eventually awakening. So at the end of the sutta, after this very sort of naturalistic, Scene where we're getting, you know, learning everything up to and including how they take care of the toilet. Um, We then get this completely uh, magical, from our viewpoint, story about how these spirits, (laughs) we have spirits again, uh, go to the Buddha and talk about how beneficial it is for them that. These monks have become enlightened. And he goes through all these different levels. There's apparently these different heaven realms. And he describes all of them. And and the Buddha agrees with him. Uh, But at the end, let's see where one took it. He says, If all Brahmins, all merchants, all workers should remember those three clansmen with confident heart. That would lead to the welfare and happiness of the workers for a long time. If the world, with its gods, its maras, and its brahmas, this generation with its recluses and brahmins, its princes and its people, should remember those three clansmen with confident heart, that would lead to the welfare and happiness of the world for a long time. How those three clansmen are practicing for the welfare and happiness of the many out of compassion for the world for the good, welfare, and happiness of gods and humans. What strikes me about this last phrase, he says, these clansmen are practicing for the welfare and happiness of, of the many, out of compassion for the good, welfare, and happiness of gods and humans. What's striking about this is that Theravadan Buddhism has often been accused of being a selfish path by other schools of Buddhism. So the Mahayana, which has the Bodhisattva vow, which is the vow to uh, forestall your own awakening until all beings are enlightened. You know, I'm going to work for the enli- freedom of all beings. Sort of says, well, Theravadan Buddhism is all about getting enlightened yourself as an individual. And we are, care about all beings. So here we have a statement by the Buddha that this path is actually done for, uh, out of compassion for the world, for the good, welfare, and happiness of gods and humans. So, I uh, kind of... Uh, my team wins. <laughs> I, 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 th- I, I heard Jack Cornfield say something like, the way that you liberate all beings is that you stop reifying them you stop seeing them as separate self, and then all beings are liberated and st- like because usually you think, oh, I have to like get everybody enlightened I have to go around like meditate with people and teach them Dharma, and okay, are you okay you're good, okay, good, and then move on to the next one until <laughs> everybody is enlightened, which you know can't be done uh, but you know uh, Jack has this beautiful kind of aikido moves like. I don't have to do anything. All I have to just do is let go of seeing them as, seeing them as, as self, if I, if I let go of the idea of self. That's one way of looking at it. I like that, because it's easy. Okay, I'm going to start this next to uh, the simile of the saw and the theme of the simile of the thaw, thaw, the simile of the thaw, sorry, (laughs) I am saying is how to practice patience in the face of attacks from others. Now, I haven't given you the whole sutta. I've given you some of the the climax of the sutta, but I'm going to tell you the whole story because I find it kind of intriguing. It's got a couple of different stories in it. The first one is... That uh, it, uh, tells about a monk named Molia Faguna, which I, whenever I read that, I think it's like an Italian insult or something. <laughs> Molia Faguna. <laughs> uh, I hope no Italians are offended by that. <laughs> um, he's been associating over much with bhikkhunis, which are the nuns. Mm. Yeah. No, that's, a, that's a real no-no. <laughs> he was associating so much with bhikkhunis that if any bhikkhu spoke dispraise of those bhikkhunis in his presence, he would become angry and displeased and re- rebuke him. And if any bhikkhu spoke dispraise of the venerable Moli of Faguna in those bhikkhunis' presence, they would become angry and displeased and re- rebuke him. So the Buddha calls him <laughs> says, I'm here, you've been doing this. And uh, and, you know, is that true? And he's like, yeah, that is true. And, uh, and the Buddha says, you know, that, that's, you're not supposed to do this. This isn't good. Uh, he says, uh, if anyone speaks dispraise of the bhikkhunis in your presence, you should abandon any desires and any thoughts based on the household life. Okay, This is like code for don't think about getting married. Don't think about sex, because obviously this is why the f- basic reason why he wants to k- keep him away from getting too friendly with the, with the nuns. But then he says, You should train thus. My mind will be unaffected, and I shall utter no evil words. I shall abide compassionate for their welfare with a mind of loving kindness without inner hate. And, and he goes on. He kind of raises the stakes. If anyone gives those bhikkhunis a blow with his hand, with a clod, with a stick, or with a knife in your presence, you should abandon any desires and thoughts based on the household life. And herein you should train thus. My mind will be unaffected. So, he's basically saying, you know, you you um, shouldn't respond in any in any way if they're attacked, even if they're attacked physically, which is. A pretty challenging teaching, Uh, something we can talk about. Um, So, um, a couple things about this. Um, I mean, we know this is, you know, to start with, this is about the monastic rules and about celibacy, and, and so, you know, the Buddha's trying to keep the Sexes apart, and he knows the risk of them being together. And I- indeed, later on, we find out that Faguna, as it's called, uh, did leave the leave the ropes. So apparently, he didn't have enough kind of commitment. But uh, you know, there's there's other issues that are kind of being brought up here, and so. Uh, The first one I'd like to address is how the Buddha says if anyone says anything negative about them, you get into an argument with them about it. If anybody criticizes them, and the same with them. If If anybody criticizes you to them, they get into an argument with them. So it seems to me that this is one of the things that we're talking about here, what we could call bias, you know, our prejudice or our, you know, what our beliefs. Like, I'm not going to hear anything you say about them, right? Rather than, oh, you're criticizing them. What are you saying? I'd like to know what you're saying and see whether there's some truth to it, right? It's just I've just decided this is, you know, I've I've got this this position that I'm taking. And th- I think that teaching in itself is one that we can all benefit from, right? To question the stances we take about this is right and this is wrong. What who I defend? Wh- who I think is right? You know, and and how how much we can accept that? Um, and you know, and, and I think that's like a a vital question uh, in our in our lives, and so many different levels on the personal level, on the social, on the political level. But the, the other thing that comes up, and this comes up again in the sutta, is just this question of uh, the, the Buddhist stance about violence, which is unequivocal. You know, he's saying, it, 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 if so, He mentions a knife. He doesn't say stabbing with a knife, but one must assume that if somebody's being attacked with a knife, it's being stabbed. Uh, I, should remi- you know, I should remain unaffected. So that, that's something that um, you know Buddhists have been debating for some time, and and particularly after nine eleven, there was a big, really kind of conversation in the Buddhist community about what's the appropriate way to respond to being attacked. Um, and I don't have the answer. If you thought I was going to give you that, um, but I think it's one that we have to look at seriously, and and. Well, I, I, as we get further in the sutta, I think we, we get some, some ideas that I think are helpful. So the next thing, the Buddha ch- now changes gears, and the next thing he just talks about is basically people following the rules that he sets out. And he talks about it in the, in the context of the rule about just having one meal a day. But what he's talking about is like, this guy is, you know doesn't listen to me. And he says, like, when I first was teaching... I didn't have to get on people's case. I just told them the way it was. But what happened was that over time, I just gave them the rule and they followed it. So what happened over time was more and more people started coming to the Buddha and it kind of became unwieldy where people were not that committed or they were coming for the wrong reasons or they just weren't able to stick with the rules. And so he started to have these problems, like the quarrel at Kosambi, you know, people arguing about the water in the bathroom, you know. Um, because early on, the people who were there were just his devoted followers. So, you know, this is kind of a, a sidelight here. Um, but, uh, because very quickly, he goes into another story. Uh, and this one is just, well, here's the story. There's a, a, um, a maid named Kali who works for a woman named Vedahika, mistress Vedahika. And her mistress, Vedahika, is in her community, is, everybody sees her as being this very kind, very gentle, soft spoken person. And Kali suspects that that's kind of covering up something, that she's really not all that nice underneath. So Kali decides to start to test her mistress. She starts getting up later and later in the morning, every day. And at, at first Vedahika's like, what's the matter with you? And she's like, nothing's the matter. What do you mean? What's, nothing is the matter, you wicked girl. You get You get up so late. And so she's getting kind of day after day, more and more angry and starting to yell at her. Finally, this is where it gets good. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is, I think, I think this is the page that you have. Uh, It says, so, so the maid got up still later in the day. And, uh, Mistress Vedahika said, Hey, Kali, what is it, madam? What is the matter that you get up still later in the day? Nothing is the matter, madam. You can see this Kali, like, really playing her. Nothing is the matter, you wicked girl, yet you get up still later in the day. And she was angry and displeased, and she took a rolling pin, gave her a blow on the head, and cut her head. Then the maid, Kali, with blood running from her cut head, denounced her mistress to the neighborhood neighbors. See, ladies, the kind ladies work. See, ladies, the gentle ladies work. See, lady, the peaceful ladies work. How sh- can she become angry and displeased with her only maid for getting up late? How sh- can she take a rolling pin, give her a blow on the head, and cut her? Then later on, a report about Mistress Vedehika spread thus. Mistress Vedahika is rough. Mistress Vedahika is violent. Mistress Vedahika is merciless. So... I mean, first of all, it's just a pretty bizarre story, and you know, uh, 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 all, uh, all of this entire book, which as I said was translated Bhikkhu Bodhi, he did a whole series of talks on the, on this book. And when he talked about this, one of the things he said when he got to this story, he said, You know, this is kind of a weird story because, like, why wouldn't she get mad <laughs> at her? For the woman's like her, you know, she works for her, it's like, Come on. So, even, even Bhikkhu Bodhi had his doubts about uh, whether Kali was really being skillful in what she was doing. But uh, nonetheless, the Buddha gives this as an example. He says, he's, as how to respond to disagreeable courses of speech. And he says that one should be easy to admonish. So, again, it's a little backward because Kali's getting admonished, but anyway. Um, but this, this term, easy to admonish, shows up in a lot of places in the sutras. And so really, a good, uh, another kind of model for how to, you know, can I take criticism, right? To be easy to admonish. Someone says to me, oh, thank you for sharing, you know, kind of, mm-hmm. can, I, can I take that in? Can I accept that? Can I listen to that? Or am I, have I got this, you know, block that I, that I resist any, any criticism? Um, you know, and he gives it as an example with uh, with uh, with a monk wanting to get food and and all the, what I called the requisites: housing, uh, medicine, food, robes. That they'll act; someone will act nicely when they want to get those things. But then, uh, if somebody, uh, you know, if they've got all those things, then they aren't so easy to admonish. Um. But now, now the Buddha m- takes it one step further. So uh, uh, this, this sutta I see as kind of progressive in terms of the Buddha raising the stakes. So in this, in this uh, talking about being easy to admonish, he's, you know, t- he continues to say, go back to uh, something we've already heard, which is our, when, you, when someone speaks to you, you should. Your mind should remain unaffected and we shall utter no evil words. We shall abide compassion for their welfare with a mind of loving kindness. And this phrase, a mind imbued with loving kindness, abundant, exalted, immeasurable. Uh, Ajahn Pasano has a book with that title, Abundant, Exalted, Immeasurable, without hostility and without ill will. That is how you should train. So now... We get to a series of images, which are vary from being fascinating to somewhat bizarre. So, do you do you have that page? Or do, maybe you don't. Do you have the? Do you have page two twenty one? Is that okay? So look look at this phrase, verse twelve. Bicus, suppose a man came with a hoe and a basket and said, I shall make this great earth be without earth. Okay, that's uh, nothing confusing about that sentence. <laughs> okay, you got to read on. He would dig here and there, strew the soil here and there, spit here and there, and urinate here and there, saying, be without earth, be without earth. What do you think, Bicus? Could that man make this great earth to be without earth? No, venerable stirrer. Why is that? Because this great earth is deep and immense. It cannot possibly be made to be without earth. Eventually the man would reap only weariness and disappointment. So then he goes back to talking about how we should respond to the, the courses of thought, the different ways people speak to us, and saying our minds will remain unaffected so what he's saying is that your mind should be like the earth. Your, your, your loving kindness should be like the earth, unmovable, like nobody could dig it up, right? If, some, if your loving kindness is as vast as the earth and somebody came and was mean to you, you'd be like, that's like somebody trying to dig up my loving kindness. It's too vast to be dug up. Impossible, right? Somewhat odd way that he gets there, but we se- haven't seen nothing yet. The next one. Because suppose a man came with crimson, turmeric, indigo, and carmine and said, I shall draw pictures and make pictures appear on empty space. What do you think, Bikus? Could that man draw pictures and make pictures appear on empty space? No, venerable sir. Why is that? Because empty space is formless and invisible. He cannot possibly draw pictures there or make pictures appear there. Eventually the man would reap only weariness and disappointment. So, I don't think you have another page of the sutta. Uten- oh, you do? Oh, yeah, right. I give you two pages of this, right, because you got to see the end. That, that would have been cruel. So, again, strange image. I'm going to try to paint space, but it's a great way of describing a mind that's unaffected, right? My mind shall remain unaffected, right? That... You know, if someone comes at you and and starts giving you a hard time, and your mind is just open and spacious. It's like it can't stick, right? There's a story the Buddha tells of a Brahmin comes to criticize him. The Brahmin is pacing back and forth in front of the Buddha, with this st- hitting the ground with his stick and complaining about the way the Buddha teaches. And I always imagine the Buddha just sitting there with this serene. Hmm,
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And he's kind of like, are you done? Yes. I just ra- want to ask you a question. What is that? If uh, Do you uh, invite people to come to your home? Why, of course I have people come to my home. Why wouldn't I? I'm a f- sociable person. Good. So when you have uh, someone to come to your home, do you offer them food and drink? Of course I offer them food and drink. What do you think I am? Rude? Yes. So if you offer them food and drink, and they turn you down if they don't want any food or drink, who does the food and drink belong to? Well, of course it would belong to me, because it was mine. Just so with your anger, Brahmin. I do not accept either your anger towards me. You may keep it for yourself. You
1: know. <laughs>
0: suppose a man came with a blazing grass torch and said, I shall heat up and burn away the river Ganges with this blazing grass torch. What do you think? Could that man heat up and burn away the Ganges with that gra- blazing grass torch? No, venerable sir. I mean, I need you guys to start chanting along with me. Soon. <laughs> Why is that? Because the river Ganges is deep and immense. It cannot possibly be heated up and burned away with the blazing grass torch. Eventually, the man would reap only weariness and disappointment. And you see how the the, uh, what I was talking about—how he uses the same set of phrases, and he just inserts a different topic for each one. So, yeah, again, like if my if my heart is like the Mississippi or the Ganges or the Pacific, no one can. You know, burn. It's, uh, burning is a good image too, right? No one can come with their hot anger and melt it away. Have it. It's like no, there's just plenty of it. I'll just easily replaced. And now this one, eighteen, is uh, even Bhikku Bodhi couldn't understand this. Uh, so we'll do what we can. Suppose there were a cat skin bag that was rubbed, well rubbed, thoroughly well rubbed. <laughs> Soft, silky, rid of rustling, rid of crackling, and a man came with a stick or a pot shirt and said, There's this cat's sting bag that is rubbed, rid of rustling. I shall make it rustle and crackle. What do you think, Bhikkhus? Could that man make it rustle or crackle with the stick or the pot shirt? No, venerable sir. Thank you. Yeah. Very good. So, what strikes me particularly about this is that he's using these really kind of big images: Earth, space, the Ganges, and now we're talking about a bag. It's not nearly as dramatic. It just like I, I think as a narrative, I would build it like differently, you know. But uh, but I guess um, you know I guess it makes a certain amount of sense. You've got this really soft thing, and the guy's trying to make noise, doesn't make noise. Okay, it just doesn't quite have the resonance of like, trying to dig up the Earth. All right, so now we finally come to the climax. So, you know, our minds will remain unaffected. We shall utter no evil words. We shall abide compassion for their welfare. Bhikkhus, this is 20. Even if bandits were to sever you savagely, limb by limb, with a two-handled saw, he who gave rise to a mind of hate toward them would not be carrying out my teaching. Herein, bhikkhus, you should train thus; Our minds will remain unaffected. We shall utter no evil words. We shall abide pervading them with a mind imbued with loving kindness. If you keep this advice on the simile of the saw constantly in mind, do you see any course of speech, trivial or gross, that you could not endure? (laughs) No, venerable sir. Therefore, you should keep this advice on the simile of the saw constantly in mind. That will lead to your welfare and happiness for a long time. Well, as we say in AA, what an order. I can't go through with it, you know. <laughs> I mean, if people come along, and I, I like how graphic it is, too. It's not just uh, being sawed. If bandits were to sever you savagely with a two handled saw, so that there's one guy on each side, you know, <laughs> Limb by limb. So, what the heck is going on here? I mean, uh, is is the Buddha? Re- is this a real thing? It was my first question when I, when I first was looking at this some years ago. I thought, okay, he's just kind of exaggerating for effect. Um, and it wasn't until I was teaching this sutta. At Saint Mary's College, where I sometimes teach Jan term, and it's a Catholic college, and so some, for some reason the thought of Christ on the cross came up for me. And and I think about what happened, the story that we have passed down to us of Christ, uh, the night before his crucifixion, he's whipped, and you know, they uh, you know beaten and uh, tortured. Uh, you know this. Thorns, crown of thorns, is driven into his skull. He's forced to drag this huge wooden cross through the streets of Jerusalem as people spit on him and throw rocks on him. And then he's nailed to a cross, which uh, wasn't necessary, <laughs> to say the least. But I mean, crucifixion—that uh, what causes death in crucifixion is suffocation. So. I didn't realize that when I was a kid. I always thought that the nails were what killed him. But what kills you is that you can't get enough air. You're tied up to the cross, and then you can't get enough air, and eventually you suffocate, which sounds like a really unpleasant way to die, among the many unpleasant ways that's up there. So he's nailed up just for good measure, and then the spear driven through his side. And what are we told he says now? You know, Forgive them, Lord, they know not what they do. Which was something that I always found really inspiring as a kid. You know that the martyrdom of Christ. I I mean, certainly I grew out. I stopped being a Catholic or a Christian years ago, but that image uh, certainly was powerful for me. And maybe because it's part of our culture, when I think of that, it's also very personal. Whereas in the sutta it 's kind of impersonal it 's like bandits get you for no reason I mean they just why are they sawing off your limbs? you know what I mean like if they if they want your money here, go ahead you know you don 't have to take my arms too so it's sort of uh, uh, odd you know there isn 't a sort of uh, impact of this you know the savior it's like this is like if the Buddha was you know uh, put on the cross, then it would have some more personal impact but uh, you know I, I realized wow that's that's an image of someone who's essentially the same thing in, in our culture. Uh, it's not his limbs being sawed off, but it seems like it would be equally painful. And, and his response you know, of forgiveness it goes beyond even wishing loving kindness for them. Not only is he presumably not hating them, but he is praying to God, to his father, as we're told, you know, praying to God, that they won't bear the karmic consequences of their actions, which takes even more courage than just to forgive or to send loving kindness, but to actually say no, they know not what they do, right they don't know any better they they're driven by hatred you know and uh so that it's unusual for me to find a, a Catholic Christian teaching that that illuminates Buddhism for me, but for that one, I do feel that it illuminates this sutta for me because it, because it is something that resonates for me personally. That that inspiration of forgiveness. Um, so it it certainly is a challenging and interesting uh, story and and theme from the Buddha. Um, Uh, I don't, yeah. So I think that's, that's all I'll say right now. Um, I certainly be happy to hear any, uh, any thoughts from you guys, how this strikes you.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: So I like this. Um, this brings up this, uh, question of repression versus expression. Um, mm-hmm. I was recently in a Buddhist country, uh, Cambodia, which has a troubling uh, recent history. Yeah. And uh, watching a movie about the um, the genocide in the 70s. Yeah. And the filmmaker commented on the Cambodian smile. Hmm. That Cambodian people tend to be very, you know, you can yell at them and scream at them and they smile back at you. And uh, because it's, it's uh, a positive thing to... Be unmovable to attack, mm-hmm. um, and yet I think the commentary in this film was that that repression is actually under you know pushing down mm-hmm. underneath the negativity that is being built up, and that maybe even is the kindling of which something like terrible like that could be expressed in a grand scale. So,
1: mm-hmm.
2: what do you think? You know, what is your interpretation well, of that sort of thing?
0: That's a really good question, and and it it's something that's certainly addressed in co- from contemporary buddhist teachers the the understanding is that mindfulness is a middle way or a third way in fact that's not repression and not expression but that it's a openness and and this has to do with feelings <laughs> it's not about actions so we that's another category, but the idea and the, that mi- is that mindfulness is meant to be uh, a, an attitude and a training that allows us to fully feel. Things are not at all repressed, but that allows us to feel without having to do something with it. That expression, or what we'd call reactivity, is something different from fully experiencing something. The thing is that when we are not attentive, when and when the mind isn't trained, shall we say, we can't separate the trigger from the expression of it. We're not able to see that there's actually two different things, and that it's possible to have an experience without reacting to it. It's only, and so. Um, The, I think I was talking about this last weekend that one of the ways we can talk about how um, mindfulness and, and Buddhist meditation uh, what it does is that it helps us to uh, see things differently and to experience things differently so the experiencing things differently means that there's actually a cooling that happens in the heart, it's the equanimity I was talking about, that arises out of the process. The seeing is the insight that we have. So, for instance, we, ha- we might have the insight already that we don't want to act on violence. But if we are still overwhelmed with anger and frustration, then we're going to be in this conflict and th- and this is why buddhism isn't just a dogma don't kill don't haunt, you know don't get angry it's also a training that trains we say the mind the heart and mind so that it is possible for us to not get overwhelmed with that that we can feel things but but that there's a strength and a balance an inner quality of peace that allows us to experience those things, be present with them without being overwhelmed. You know, the, the, I was, <laughs> I've been thinking about this term, irritable. Able to be irritated. right? And how that's kind of the state. right? We, we are, we, if you're irritable, then something's going to come along and irritate you. If you're able to be irritated, something is going to irritate you. So we train ourselves so that we are not irritable. You know, just for example, I also use the term depressible. That's how I am. You know, anything that happens is depressing, right? So, if, if so, we train ourselves. Uh, I say train, I mean, it, that's just the term for meditation practice that actually has, um, you know, these changes uh, physiological, uh, psychological. Spiritual whatever you want to call them, that all kind of combine to to allow for a different way of responding in the world yeah well it's a good question too about about Cambodia and and, and just thinking about um, about about uh, the nonviolent path you know the obviously this is the Gandhi's path and this is Martin Luther King and and it's it's a difficult <laughs> path to choose, you know. Uh, because it's uh you don't necessarily get the results you want right away, you know. You don't get the benefit of like shock and awe. We're gonna go in there, we're gonna fix it right up, you know, we're gonna bomb them, take over, and then we're good, you know. Then we'll return to peace. You know. Um <laughs> that uh that to resist uh, oppression or um, you know uh, any kind of uh, unskillful actions by a power to do that without violence is is very hard Um, but who was it? I said, I said, Gandhi You said the long arc of the arc of history is very long but it bends towards justice, yeah and, and that takes faith <laughs> I believe in that yeah. so um, actually I think I want to take a little break and then we'll come back and do have another sitting hopefully we can have our non-sloth and torpor sit now. So uh, I mentioned before uh, this non-residential retreat I'm doing next month um, starts on Friday the 17th of March to the 19th. So these non-residential retreats are a new form that they've started at Spirit Rock since this building opened up. Um, So we'll probably be in the uh, southeast hall and the, this is called Sutta Recovery, early Buddhist teachings on clinging and letting go. And um, again, we'll be going through some suttas. and uh, and we, it goes each day goes from that's the same as like today nine thirty to four thirty. So it's really kind of neat because it gives us time to do some more sitting, maybe do some walking meditation. Um, as well as really dive into this topic, um, we might maybe some of the sutras we're doing this weekend might come up that day too. But the ones that I uh, have highlighted are uh, one that called called two darts. Uh, how our minds double the suffering of our bodies. Removing I mean, distracting thoughts. Some of the familiar and not some f- so familiar. Methods the Buddha suggested for quieting the mind. Satipatthana, what the Buddha really said about mindfulness. Five hindrances, working with the qualities of mind and body that block spiritual development. And Noble Friends and Noble Conversation, how fellowship and community support spiritual practice. So it's kind of an experiment. This will be the first time I've taught this. It's a topic that I've been working with uh, for several years on my own, and, and I've written some blogs on these some of these topics and kind of, it's one of those things, one of my little things that they develop because I have nothing else to do but think about stuff like this, that and golf, you know. But when it's raining like this, I have to do something else. So I hope you'll come. Hope somebody comes anyway. Um, so yeah let's let's uh, have a sitting we you know if you're if you're somebody who really likes to meditate you might be experiencing you might feel irritable right now because you're, you're not not getting in enough sitting you know came to spirit rock and I didn't even meditate damn it damn it yeah I do recommend that as you're here and you're listening to me and other people speak, that you uh, use even just the sitting and listening as a part of your practice to, to kind of uh, stay in your body, stay with your feelings. <clears throat> now we can work a little bit with uh, some of the other aspects of loving-kindness as well as mindfulness now.
3: Uh, Settling into the body. And checking in with your energy.
0: Uh, Whether you're feeling energetic or tired or balanced. And noticing the or obvious sensations in your body, where where does your mind go in your body when you close your eyes? What do you feel right away? When I say feel your body, what point of sensation or points
3: uh, immediately jump out at you? again, relaxing the points of tension, like the
0: jaw and the belly and anywhere else. It's
3: tightness or tension in the body. And letting awareness of the body
0: Open up so that you're noticing places in the body that there aren't strong sensations, that don't really capture your attention right away,
3: where are the quiet places in your body? Just having a sense of settling. Undisturbed. Just settling with the breath. see if you can connect with a
0: sense of openness in the chest and the heart center this practice can bring this sense of openness it's open in both ways in the an outward flow of love and an inward receptivity.
3: We make ourselves vulnerable, undefended. loving-kindness to all beings. Right now, let's begin by
0: bringing to mind someone who's very dear to you.
3: someone who it's easy to love. And having a sense as you breathe in and out of
0: the heart of connection with them,
3: holding them, Mm -hmm in the arms of love. Wishing them
0: happiness, peace, safety. again, you can use the phrases, may you be happy, may you be peaceful,
3: May you be safe. Letting these words resonate in your heart, in your mind. Having a sense of what they mean without
0: thinking about them so much, you're defining them, but seeing this beloved as happy, contented, at peace,
3: safe and protected. beginning to think of others who are dear to you. Friends or family. Repeating the phrases, may you be happy, may you be peaceful, may you be safe.
0: Keeping the heart
3: open, staying with that breath. with the phrases,
0: letting people arise in the mind one by one,
1: may you be happy, may you be peaceful, may you be safe.
3: Now let's move to the neutral person, this is
0: where we try to think of someone we know or we encounter, we don't have any strong feelings about. It could be someone you see in a shop or a cafe regularly. some neighbor who you have a nodding acquaintance with. It be someone you've seen today that you don't know. And the idea is that you don't have any strong emotion about them, positive or negative. But you're trying to cultivate loving kindness for all beings. So, repeating the phrases for the neutral person, may you be
1: happy, may you be peaceful, may you be safe.
0: Knowing that even though you don't know this person, they want
3: the same things that you do, that all beings want. we start to see the limits of our loving-kindness,
0: what we can arouse, when it's towards someone we don't have feelings about. And then we move deeper in by bringing to mind a difficult person Someone we know who we've had conflict with or someone we don't know like a public figure who arouses negative feelings in us. And it's suggested in one text that with the difficult person we just try to make them neutral. However you approach it, using the same phrases. Recognizing that no matter what your feelings are, that this person, too, wants to be happy, that they are beloved to
3: themselves. And noticing resistance or anger.
0: not so much putting that aside, but continuing to do the form, to breathe, to feel the heart, to repeat the phrases. May you be happy.
3: May you be peaceful. May you be safe. Not to worry if there's resistance.
0: Not to spin out either. Just try to keep it
3: simple. The breath, the words. And now, beginning to radiate loving kindness, we begin by having a sense of
0: opening our hearts to everyone in this room. Again, breathing into the heart, and having a maybe an image or a feeling of radiance. You can get that taste of loving-kindness and the willingness to share it. Filling everyone in this room with loving-kindness. May you all be
1: happy.
3: May you be peaceful. May you be safe. And radiating out to everyone in this building, to the group downstairs and the staff. Sense of the heart
0: opening, spreading, expanding. Loving kindness radiating outwards from this building up the hill, to everyone on retreat, all the teachers and staff. And across this land, touching the animals, the deer and the wild turkeys, the birds, beings that live in the ground, the insects, all the beings on this land. And then continuing to expand and Radiate outwards in all directions. Loving kindness radiating outwards toward the oceans, inward across the land, the continent. Sense of the heart growing vast,
3: limitless. Loving kind is spreading around
0: the earth, all the oceans and the lands, mountains and rivers, the plains.
3: Touching all the beings,
0: <coughs> people who are happy and those who are sad, healthy and sick, safe and in danger, free and oppressed and enslaved, young and old, those being born, those who are dying, those in the midst of war and conflict and those living in peace, those who are wealthy and those who are poor, everyone in between, All beings on earth, filled with loving-kindness, touched by this radiant quality, held in the arms of love,
3: the heart vast, limitless. And coming back, back into this room, into this body,
0: into this heart, and this breath.
3: Seeing that this limitless
0: loving-kindness lives in your own heart, is always available in your heart, if you just turn towards it, and open.
3: And returning to your own breath, your own precious life. Hmm. All right, how you doing? Yeah, hanging in? It's uh, grueling
0: work, this meditation stuff. If you've ever sat a retreat, one of the real challenges is working with energy as the day goes on. And as the weeks go on, you know you're sitting in this kind of perfect circumstances at a place like Spirit Rock, wonderful teachings, beautiful setting, and you're trying to meditate like day in and day out, and even as you settle in, you still keep hitting these moments that are just challenging that are you just can't stay awake or you're totally restless or your body starts to hurt. Um, oh, and then, you know, you might get to some layers of stuff. <laughs> or Your story just takes you over, you know. You've been meditating for like a month and all of a sudden all you can think about is your life, you know. <laughs> so it's... Uh, there's no what do they say spiritual retirement, you know there's no, there's, a, there's a couple of good lines about enlightenment. The one I like is "Now that I'm enlightened I'm as miserable as ever."
1: You know,
0: it's inspiring uh, Okay, a couple more stories here. We're going to come back to uh, King Pasinati. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it. And Queen Malika, here, for born from those who are dear. Now, I came upon this, as I said, I I guess I, you know, this book came out in 1995, and my daughter was born in 1998, so it was probably around the time that I was, uh, you know, that she was little, that I was really first getting into this. So uh, the way I came upon this sutta, as I said, there's like 150 in here, so I was just you know, looking for things to talk about. I thought, oh, I'd like to find a sutta that's about like being a parent and loving your kids and letting your kids loving you. So I found this title, Born from Those Who Are Dear. So I thought, great, this will be like this really sweet thing. No. <laughs> it's about how suffering is caused by those who are dear. Like what? Oh, there's a few sutras that start like this. Um, do you have the first page of it? Yeah, you do. Okay, so you see, uh, on that occasion, this is the second uh, paragraph. A certain householder's dear and beloved only son had died. After son death, son's death, he had no more desire to work or to eat. He kept going to the charnel ground. And crying, My only child, where are you? My only child, where are you? Then that householder went to the Blessed One, the Buddha, and after paying homage to him, sat down at one side. Notice that they always sit down at one side. This is obviously something that was like the thing you did out of respect. The Blessed One said to him, Householder, your faculties are not those of one in control of his own mind, your faculties are deranged. Harsh. Kids' only son just died. How can my faculties not be deranged, venerable sir, for my dear and beloved only son has died. Since he died, I have no more desire to work or to eat. I keep going to the charnel ground and crying. My only child, where are you? My only child, where are you? So it is, householder. So it is. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair are born from those who are dear. Arise from those who are dear. Oh, God. (laughs) Thank you so much, Buddha. Venerable sir, who would ever think that sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair are born from those who are dear? Venerable sir, happiness and joy are born from those who are dear, arise from those who are dear. Then, displeased with the blessed one's words, disapproving of them, the householder rose from his seat and left. You can't blame him, really. You know, I mean, I... To me, this the Buddha could have you know just softened the blow a little bit, you know it just really the guy does not hold back now, on that occasion, some gamblers were playing with dice not far from the blessed one. Then the householder went to those gamblers and said, "Just now, sirs, I went to the recluse Gotama and paying homage to him, I sat down at on one side when I did so uh, Gotama said to me, Bla, blah 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 blah." Then displeased with the recluse katama's words disapproving of them, I rose from my seat and left. And so the gamblers say, So it is, householder, so it is. Happiness and joy are born from those who are dear, arise from those who are dear. And the householder left thinking, I agree with the gamblers.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. We anyway, we have a problem here, you know. We're, I mean this is really kinda you know, again, kind of stick figures, right? Straw straw man. It's like. Set up the the gamblers. Oh yeah, that's that's where I'm going to get my advice about life. Uh, forget that Buddha, he's annoying. <laughs> Eventually this story reached the king's palace. Then King Pasanadev Kosla told Queen Malika, this is what's been said by the reckless Gautama Malika, so our lamentation, pain, grief, and despair are born from those who are dear, arise from those who are dear. If that has been said by the Blessed One, sire, then it is so. No matter what the recluse Katama says, Malika applauds it thus. If that has been said by the Blessed One, then it is so. (laughs) Just as a pupil applauds whatever his teacher says to him, saying, so it is, teacher, so it is, so too, Malika, no matter what the recluse says, you applaud it thus. (laughs) I'm trying to play out the part, because I want you to get the idea here, (laughs) playing out the part. It's he he, he doesn 't so a so a little backstory on Malika Malika uh, was a a flower girl, she was a complete poor lower caste uh, and not terribly attractive, not ugly, but just like sort of a plain uh, young woman, and she was a tremendous devotee of the Buddha and loved the Buddha. And she loved the Buddha so much that she radiated this quality, this quality of beauty, uh, you know, this spiritual quality. And one day, King Pasanati was, uh, you know, with his retinue was traveling through Kosla, like probably riding his elephant or something, and he sees this flower girl, and is just like spellbound by her. And then, so he raised her up and made her one one of his queens. I believe he had others, but. Um, you know, I, I like that story. That she was just that it was her spiritual beauty that made her attractive to him. But she, but uh, as you can see, you know, it, it sometimes draws puts a little wedge between them. So what Malika does is she she asks um, a Brahmin in the in the court to go go to the Buddha and ask if this is true. It's a little weird. Sometimes these sutras get. It's, you know there 's little continuity problems, so they they need to send these to Hollywood to get them straightened out you know um, she says you know go to the Buddha and ask him what he said, so I think there 's a spot in here we 'll we'll see um, i don 't think you have the next page, so i 'm going to have to give it to you so um, so that the bottom of the page is the uh, The Brahman, Nalajanga, going to the Buddha, asking him say, this is what the Buddha said, and the Buddha says, y- yes, so it is, Brahman. Um, oh, and then he tells another story. <laughs> well, it's another one just of somebody losing their mind. So, so <laughs> when somebody died. So, this is one of the things that's interesting. And Several years ago, I was... Uh, guest editing the Inquiring Mind magazine, Buddhist magazine that has since uh, been, you know, retired. It had nothing to do with me. It wasn't my fault. <laughs> um, and um, at that point, Bhikkhu Bodhi, who translated did this translation, was uh, had a regular column where he would do something on a sutta in, in Inquiring Mind. And uh, so, and we... Um, the theme for the for the issue, which I had suggested, was we called it Demons and Dharma, like working with your negative emotions, difficult emotions. And so I got in touch with Bhikkhu Bodhi, and I said, you know, this is the theme, but uh, it seems like we might have a problem because it doesn't seem like the Buddha really talks about emotions in the same way that we do. Because well, he doesn't nobody gets depressed in the suttas. like they they lose their mind because somebody dies, but other than that they're okay. It's like sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair, or else you're fine. And I was kind of curious what Bhikkhu Bodhi would say because I'm not an expert on this stuff and he wrote back and said, yes actually you're kind of right. I don't think he had really thought about it in those terms that emotions as we talk about them in the West really aren't addressed in the same way in the suttas so it, this is another reason why we need kind of modern teachers to kind of uh, interpret what the Buddha is saying but it, I just find it really striking that again maybe some cultural difference or I don't know I mean, people get afraid when the tree spirits attack them, you know. But there isn't like anxiety, as far as I can see. There's, you know, greed, hatred, and delusion. We have lots of emotions, but not like the kind of neurotic Western emotions that we have. So, so yeah. The where there, so, um, but there's one story in here that's um, kind of a. Um anyway he gives a whole series of like teachings about how people get sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair from their beloved and finally so the Brahmin goes back to the queen and reports this. And um okay, this is how it plays out. I guess she's just reporting to to uh, It says, um, Then Queen Malika went to King Pasanade of Kosla and asked him, What do you think, sire, if Prince Vajiri, is Prince Vajiri dear to you, or Princess Vajiri dear to you, his daughter? Right. Yes, of course, she's dear to me. What do you think, if change and alteration took place in Princess Vajiri, would sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair rise in you? So change and alteration is code for serious illness or death, according to a note. So... Change and alteration, so the king says, change and alteration in Princess Vigiri would mean an alteration in my life. How could sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair not arise in me? It was in re- it was with reference to this, sire, that the blessed one who knows and sees accomplished and fully enlightened, said sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair are born from those who are dear. What do you think, sire? Is the noble queen Vasaba dear to you? So this is why I think he's got another queen. He meant, she mentions another queen. Is General Vidudaba dear to you? Am I dear to you? Are Kasi and Kosala dear to you, which are the towns of this? Yes, they're dear to me. Um, <laughs> we owe it to Kasi and Kosala that we use Kasi sandalwood and gar- wear garlands, scents, and unguents. So if change and alteration took place in Kasi and Kosala, would sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair arise for you? So finally, King pasnadi says, Honor to the Blessed One, accomplished and fully enlightened. You know he he uh, he got he gets it. He understands what he's talking what she's talking about. So, uh, what of course intrigues me about this sutta is how counter to our culture it is, and how most of us think like the gamblers. You know. It's the dear. It's the, everyone wants to be married. You there's one one great sutta where <laughs> there's this woman who uh, she's going crazy because her grandchild died, and she comes to the Buddha, and he's like, "Do you have like?" 20 grandchildren. She says, yes, I love them so much. He said, how would you like it if you had 200? Oh, I'd love it even more. He said, how would you like it if you had as many grandchildren as live in this city? Oh, that would make me so happy. He says, yeah. You know what? Every day somebody dies in this city. You'd be grieving every day, you know. And she's like, oh, maybe you have a point there, blessed one. um, But, you know, uh, again, it's so and it, and it's, it's a tough really tough teaching to take. Like, okay, yeah, I hear you. That makes sense. What am I supposed to do with that? Does that mean I shouldn't have people that are beloved to me? Does that mean I shouldn't have children or get married or even have friends? And I mean, I have parents. I can't, you know, I have to have parents. You know, how am I supposed to uh, get rid of this? And, you know, and here you have... You know, you set up the Sangha so that everybody's living together. Don't the monks care about each other? Uh, and uh, so, after reflecting on this some time, the way I've come to see this teaching is not that we're not supposed to care about people, or even that we're not supposed to be attached to people, but rather that we are supposed to have wisdom about that, that we're supposed to understand so that when there's loss and when we are grieving, that we're not deranged. You know, we don't lose our minds over it. That we, we grieve, we feel great sorrow, we cry, you know. but that we're not confused. We understand that this is a natural experience, a natural unfolding of dharma, of impermanence. Everything must change, everything that's born must die. And that that insight, which is what the Buddhist teachings are pointing us to, right? Insight. That that changes our experience radically. It's very different when you understand something and you see its inevitability and its truth in this greater scheme of things than it is when you're just like, why is this happening? What's, you know? This is the worst thing that could happen. It's like, no, it's, it's just perfectly natural. It's sad. It hurts. But it's not necessarily sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. You know, it's just, it's it's life. Uh, It's one of the things that, you know, I see Buddhism as a very mature religion, you know. It's really asking us to be grown-ups and to to look at the truth and accept it. You know, and we see how how hard that is, but we don't... uh, say, oh, well, let me go, I, you know, I want to do something else that's, that doesn't make me face these things. It's like, well, what, what's the benefit of that? You know, I mean, it's not easy. And certainly um, many people won't be drawn to that. But I find, it, I find comfort in the truth, in feeling that I understand things. There is this real uh, freedom that comes from understanding when we understand how things are. Doesn't mean that life isn't difficult or that there aren't painful or challenging moments, but it's very different from when we don't understand. I mean, when people ask those questions like, "Why did this person die?" or "Why, you know, uh, how can a uh, a loving God, you know, kill give children cancer?" It's you know, it's just not there. Quite, you're not quite understanding uh, this this world we live in, this uh, creation the natural cycles, not about good or bad. Uh, the idea that death is some kind of tragedy. As I like to point out, if no one ever died, we'd really be in trouble. Yeah. Um, no. So I find that a really powerful teaching, but, uh, but as I say, not, not one that's easy to take on. That, it's not like the happy... <laughs> teaching. <laughs> oh, goody. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. So, um... Thoughts? Questions? Yeah, friend.
3: Do we have them? Mike? Daniel, thanks.
4: Uh, yeah, two things about that, I guess. Um... To, I, I think one takeaway for me my my wife is a bit younger. if things go according to plan i 'll die first oh,
0: yeah I' got a uh, to plan too
4: and uh, you know that's it, that's preferable to me in terms of sorrow and lamentation. It's like let her deal with that
0: right, plus she 'll be able to nurse you i mean that 's the whole point right
4: uh, no i wasn 't counting on that so oh much, really well oh, that's in my
0: yeah, well my yeah,
4: we'll compare notes, but anyway so. Uh, but what part of what I see in that or, or the lesson uh, about that too is this is a limited period of time that mm-hmm. I have her yeah. um, and uh, so that speaks to enjoying the time that we have together yeah. N- The other point is uh, I realize that on the calendar in a week or two it'll be the 12th anniversary of my son's death in Iraq. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the time that that occurred, um, I was fortunate to have that kind of perspective that we're talking about. So there was sorrow, grief, loss, lamentation, but, but not the kind of despair um, that I think could have been. And uh, of course, he was in the army, so in a way, it made perfect sense that he could be and was killed. Um, And the fact that he was killed with three other guys in a Humvee, uh, as my heart was breaking, it was also breaking open to the families and loved ones of those other three men. And indeed, all of those killed, Mm -hmm. harmed, disabled, blah, 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 blah. Uh, in that war and all the other many wars that we've inflicted on ourselves. So ha- having that insight was uh, very crucial for me in yeah. going through that.
0: Yeah, thanks. thanks. Yeah. yeah, a war is, is uh, one can only, th- uh, uh, I can only think that anyone who could start a war had no idea what it meant. But then again, there's times when it was considered something manly. You know, only men could think something like that. I'm not sure the women were saying, oh yeah, go be a man, start a war. Uh, Anyway, yeah, thank you. Um, I'm noticing, uh, I don't want to take another break, but I want to stand up, so I have a little practice we can do standing up, if you'd like to do that. might as well keep my microphone on. So, um, this is a, what I call Qigong Metta. There's a couple very simple exercises I learned from my fr- friend Greg Pergament, who teaches retreats with me. Um, and uh, what I do is use a couple of the phrases from the Loving Kindness Sutta as i'm doing these movements um so this first movement is just and so, so i'm not a qigong teacher but the so the the starting point of qigong is to feel your breath in the belly dantian I'm just putting my hand there to indicate that you can put your hand there if you want uh, and feel your belly coming out let really let it out This is a warm-up movement. And so as we move our arms and our hands, we have a sense that we're moving energy, moving chi. we move it, we reach up to the heavens, we bring chi down from the heavens, we push chi into the earth, moving it through our bodies, through our spirit. So this one, uh, and then the phrase I use with this is radiating kindness over the entire world. Spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths. So I'm just going to repeat the phrases as we're doing the exercise. When we go out here, upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths. And taking in-breath, going up. Out-breath, coming down, moving chi into the earth, into the dantian. Upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths. Upwards to the skies
3: and downwards to the depths. Okay, and then returning to center. Just
0: breathing, letting the arms rest at your sides. The knees are soft, so you're not locking your knees. Here we bring chi up from the earth and then we surround ourselves with it. This is the movement. And then out forward, around. And as your arms come down, you're imagining that your chi is continuing around your body. You're bringing upward the breath and you hold the breath until your arms get out in front and then release. Chi surrounding you. In-breath, hold, out-breath. And for this, the phrase is outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Outward and unbounded, free from hatred
3: and ill will. Outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. If you stay in touch with the palms
0: of your hands, just imagine that you're moving chi, whatever that is.
1: Just moving
3: your hands through space,
0: feeling the resistance. No, release the spreading,
3: the bringing together. Okay. Thank you.
1: Yeah, of course. Uh, about what you were—we were just talking about <laughs>
5: the the, um, the notion of of grievous
3: death, kind or losing your mind, mm-hmm. and from a... uh, uh, uh to, to sort of recalibrate...
5: If you have uh, loved ones who are ripped from you, pretty uh, crazily, yeah. that you you, you kind of would lose your mind for yeah. a period of time, or yeah. so. Yeah,
0: no, I, I'm uh, absolutely. I mean, uh, particularly as you say. Well, I'm not sure. I don't know this phrase "grievous death," but it well,
5: sounds. Just, you you had the the litany.
0: Yeah. And and absolutely, I mean, uh, you know, certainly there are horrors. Um, probably what Fran just described as one of the horrors we can imagine. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I, I'm not sitting up here in judgment of, like, oh, well, geez, you really lost it when your kid died. What's wrong with you, you know? Um, and it it's... Yeah, I mean it. it again, the, the Buddha is very challenging. You know, he's, he's cr- giving us really tremendous challenges. Saying, you know, no, you need to, you know, not don't don't go crazy with it. And it's uh, it it seems, as you say, in certain circumstances, it's natural to just kind of lose it. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with that, particularly. Uh,
5: and, and if you. Take that as sort of one thought experiment. If someone murders someone who is close to you, yeah. then the conversation around uh, forgiveness to those or someone who murdered one of your dear ones is happens, right?
0: Yeah, and you know, there's some pretty inspiring. Examples of people who have forgiven in, in those circumstances—just the the relatives of the people who were killed by Dylan Roof, who were apparently, you know, yeah. speaking about forgiveness—not not that they thought that he should be exonerated, but you know, they you know they pretty powerful and you know really very true to their beliefs, to their spiritual religious beliefs. So, uh, you know, it's, it's not for the faint of heart, is it? This path, you know, much easier to, you know, latch on to that primal hatred, primal greed. You know, those are very deeply embedded in us, you know, this is like... I mean, this is what religion is about to a great extent, civilizing humans so that we can live together. That's like one of the purposes, right? But uh, but the Buddha really puts it on another level, I think. Um, and because he he frames it around this, around kind of a psychology, you know, an understanding. And he doesn't frame this as a moral issue. Like, you shouldn't, you're a bad person if you... Hate someone else, or you're a bad person if you're uh sorrowing. saying you're, you're, he puts it around suffering. You know, he says, you know, you're when you get angry or when you uh lose your mind, you're, you're creating suffering for yourself. You, you don't have to suffer on that level. There's another way to you can experience this without being overwhelmed. You know, you can't. And that's what he's trying to help us to do—to man, to manage that—to you know, get to this level of, of emotional maturity or spiritual maturity.
5: And and the path with that, like the the sons or daughters or whatever of the gentleman whose name now I'm not remembering, going it would would part of that be saying. It's all impermanence, and we don't get to say how the impermanence happens.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, that's the essence of it, is that everything is impermanent. Um, And we have to be careful even with these kind of ideas, because that can be used as another way to shut down or to repress someone was talking about before. Oh well, it's just all impermanent, so you know nothing you can do about it. it's like no, you know that's this isn't saying you shouldn't. You're not going to suffer. You're not going to experience sorrow. It's it's saying there's a difference between feeling grief and being overcome and crippled with grief as this guy is. It's just I mean he's going to the charnel ground, right, where they leave, they throw the bodies that and and you know my only son, where are you? It's like, dude. You know that. I mean, he's like really lost it. You know, that's that's different. Um, you know, there's a there's an image. Let me see if I can pull this out that I love of the Buddha. That because I, I do get concerned about. You know, I start thinking like, is the Buddha this unfeeling person on some level? Because like, we know from his story that he. You know, he left his wife and daughter, uh, wife and son. Uh, suppo- supposedly, like, right when his son was born, he left to, to become enlightened, and his wife wasn't happy about it. Um, but there, th- there's this little moment here. This is late in his life. Uh, when... Uh, He's sitting with this large group of monks, but his two best friends, Saraputa and Mogalana, have, have passed away. They're not around anymore. They're dead. <laughs> Don't let me use the euphemism. They're dead. They died. And then Listen to what he says. Bhikkhus, this assembly appears to me empty now that Saraputta... And Moggallana have attained final nibbana, uh, final nirvana, which is nirvana. This assembly was not empty for me earlier, and I had no concern for whatever quarter Saraputa and Mogalana were dwelling in. The Arhats, the perfectly enlightened ones who arose in the past, also had just such a supreme pair of disciples as I had in Saraputa and Mogalanda. That our haunts, the perfectly enlightened ones who will arise in the future will also have just such a supreme pair of disciples as I had in Saraputin, and Boglana. this assembly appears to me empty now, you know uh, I hear his grief in there, you know he, I mean his friends are dying off, you know. <laughs> And it's kind of like, you know, he's the last one standing. And he's kind of like, hmm. So he's not pulling his hair out, but, but but that's one moment when we maybe get exposed to a little bit of the Buddha's uh, uh, real emotional life. But one of the things about the suttas is that they... You know, just as with any religious writings and anything that's preserved, they're trying to depict him as this perfect being. You know, he's he's put forward as this, uh, you know, almost omniscient uh, being and perfect being, and they list all these perfections he has, and and it's not not believable to me, <laughs> frankly. You know. Uh, I mean, Christ on the cross is more believable to me. And and that, as I say, that kind of helps me. I don't know, I may have to go back to church. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, I, th- I think it would, it would help me a little bit if there were a little bit more of a way of looking at the Buddha. Um, one of the interesting ones uh, of looking at him kind of as more human, humanizing him a bit one of the interesting ones that's been written is um, uh, Mark Epstein's book, uh, "The Trauma of Everyday Life." That's pretty interesting. I see a few nodding heads. Um, he, the thing that stood out for me in the book was how he kind of psychoanalyzes the Buddha. And Mark Epstein is a you know Freudian analyst, and so it's a little you know it gets a little. Far into that for me, but the idea that the Buddha, the Buddha's mother died apparently when he was an infant, just like right after he was born, a week after he was born, and then he's raised by his aunt who marries his father. Um, and then but so, you know, in psychoanalytic terms, I guess. He's like abandoned by his mother, right? It's like the mother dies, so there's a trauma. And uh, even in the infant, pres- presumably, that's the, the model of that thinking. And so he grows up, and what does he do when his son is born? He leaves, like right away, right? So he's repeating the cycle, right? Repeating the cycle of trauma and then what's his teaching what's the main th- essence of his teaching don't cling to anything <laughs> you can't trust anything everything's changing all the time so so uh and you can't really debate with that the t- his the truth of those teachings the four noble truths the teachings on impermanence you know, that's pretty you know pretty strong argument to be made for them but but uh I think it's really interesting to take it from this modern viewpoint. I, I don't want to impose that and say that's the way it is, but I think it's an interesting thing for us to look at. Say, oh, well that you know, there's a, another way to understand what was motivating the Buddha. What like took? T- why was that his particular gateway into awakening was through that? Through that insight. Um, there's also a beautiful book. Uh, that I often talk about called The Buddha's Wife that's a a fictionalization, part of the book is a fictionalization of what the Buddha's wife did after he left and uh, it's it's kind of beautiful um, but it's kind of again, kind of challenging that one is challenging more his decision to pursue enlightenment alone to go off on his own and kind of saying, well you can get enlightened in a in a community that a spiritual uh, co- community can be a, a path which of course in the 12-step world is kind of the the path so the mark what mark. mark Epstein's called the trauma of everyday life which I don't I don't quite get the title but although life is traumatic um, so, I thought for the well, we have now arrived at the, the Buddha's words on loving kindness. So, uh, it's been a long build up. So, this, as I said, is the sutta that we're told the Buddha recited uh, when the monks came back from the fairy forest. not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. So I'm going to stop there. Uh, Because that's what I would call the the opening of the sutta. It, it, It shifts in the next line. But I'd like to point out that having gone through about a quarter of the sutta, there's been no reference to love or kindness, or metta, <laughs> uh, or anything that we even would really remotely say, This, if you had heard those words, uh, would, and someone said, what do you think this sutta is about? You'd probably be like, well, I don't know, it's about like being peaceful, and kind of being like a good person or something, contented, not demanding, you know upright, straightforward, gentle in speech. So, what we could say in terms of the the path of sila, samadhi, panya, the the path that starts with behavior and ethical, moral behavior, samadhi, meditation, panya, wisdom, is that this is about sila. This is about living skillfully. And this is what one should do. And then one should wish, <laughs> or wishing in gladness and, and in safety, may all beings be at ease. And now the teachings on loving kindness arise. But I think it's just really important to see that what he's saying, again, the foundation for loving kindness is to live in a moral way, just like the guys living in the forest who are taking care of each other. That Let's take
3: care of the basics first. Yeah.
1: Yeah,
6: I mean, why not just say, you know, um, let them not do the slightest unwise thing. I mean, if I can discern who's wise, then. Right? I don't. <laughs> well, know. Yeah, I, but I, I'm just curious your take on this. Is
0: well, I, uh, yeah, no, I, I think it's it's very much about don't just trust your own th- ideas. Try to find. Some, get some feedback on this. Um, and you know even in the Kalama Sutta, which is the Sutta where the Buddha says don't listen to the elders and don't just believe it if it's in a book and don't even believe it if your teacher says it, he then says, but before you decide, check with the wise. So one translation or one commentary I read says that really when he's talking about the wise, he's referring to himself. <laughs> Since we don't have him around, though, you know, yeah, I, I mean, it's kind of like in the 12 steps going to your sponsor before you do something stupid, you know, or wise, as the case may be. But yeah, I think it, it again points to the importance of Sangha, of community, that, that this isn't a solitary path. That you can just like, oh, I've got this now. You know, I'm just gonna do. You know, I'm just gonna listen to my heart, and fo- you know, follow my heart. It's like, yeah, okay, that's good. But just check with somebody. Oh, good. Oh, yeah. The, this is actually uh, f- for chanting. So we can, if we have time, we'll ch- chant it. Um, the The dots indicate. The note, there's only three notes. You start on one note, and then when there's a dot below it, you go down a note. If there's a dot above it, you go up a note. Or like a whole tone or something like that. So now we go into the section where he's really starting to say what you're supposed to do as 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 a, a projection of loving kindness. Wishing in gladness and in safety... May all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. So that's what I would call like the second section because it's focusing... It's First of all, it's giving us the meditation instructions that wish that may all beings be at ease. And as you do it, be in, well, it's a, actually a good question. Wishing in gladness and in safety may all beings be at ease. So presumably we could say that we're saying may you be happy would be the gladness and may you be peaceful would be the ease and may you be safe is the safety, right? Those are the three phrases that I use. Um, they're very common. I didn't make them up. Um, you know, crazy, just rep- weird little you know repetition. Weak or strong, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small. Just such strange little phrases. I don't know what the translation of that is. The seen and the unseen. So that we could just say, oh, well, there's people on the other side of this hill. I can't see them. I'm sending love to them. But I'm guessing that he's talking more about like beings in other realms, like he talks about and he believes in those born and to be born. He doesn't mention those who are dead. So uh, there are teachings in the in the uh, Maga, the commentaries that say, don't do metta for people that are dead because it's like all they want to... The Vasudhi Maga, the loving-kindness practice is just to develop concentration. They don't seem to be interested really in the heart part of it. So they're like, when you think about dead people, you'll just get depressed, so don't think about them. I'm like, okay, that's a weird thing, but um, on the other hand, maybe it makes sense. Uh, uh, I don't know. Um, all right, so we've gotten this piece here, where you know the all the beings. Notice we have not sent loving kindness to ourselves. <laughs> okay, although hopefully we are consider ourselves to be one, all beings. What? It's assumed that when we say, may all beings be at ease, I'm a being. I don't have to do a special one for me. Okay, so notice the shift in tone now from may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. So now we're focusing on non-ill will. So this is the what the simile of the saw is really about even though he says at the end he mentions loving kindness at the end but most of that sutta is about non-ill will and what he often uses this negative terminology some of you have heard me talk about this that that instead of saying love he very often says non-ill will instead of saying um letting go he'll say non-greed you know non-hatred non-delusion so what i think he's doing with this negative language is is two things one is instead of naming something that your mind might get attached to like oh i'm supposed to be generous you know or i'm supposed to be loving then then you kind of go to that and try to create that, instead he's saying just let go of greed let go of hatred and so that doesn't give you anything to latch on to and it also then implies that if you just remove the negative what's left is the positive positive. and this is the Buddhist view as well that, that our inherent quality our true nature is, is pure is loving is generous, that when we take away the hindrances, when we take away greed, hatred, and delusion, what's there is positive, so we don't have to import it. Which is another reason why loving-kindness as a practice like, oh, I need to really cultivate love, let me get my, some love going, you know, it's, it's nice. I mean, I, I don't mean to you know, diss it, but, but if we can let go of ill will, I think we actually go further because I don't have a hard time loving my daughter. You know what I mean? I don't really have to cultivate that. The people that I love already. It's the pro, The biggest problem is ill will. If I could let go of anger and and aversion to people, that would be the most freeing thing. Yeah. It's kind of like doing the fourth step, working with the presence of the negative. Yeah. Right, right, that's exactly what the steps do, right? Yeah, exactly.
1: Hmm? the
0: sixth <laughs> What? The sixth. Or the sixth step, right, it's like four through seven, we could say, yeah, for those who aren't in on the steps. Step four is told, called a searching and fearless moral inventory. So we look at those negative qualities, negative past behaviors and habitual patterns. We share them with someone and then in, this, in the language of the steps, we ask God to remove them, but um, in the language of Buddhism, we cultivate the qualities that will allow them to, us to let go of them. Okay, and now we come to my favorite line, and really this kind of critical line in the, in the sutta. Even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. I'm going to stop there. Um, so a few, a few things in here. First of all, um, here's the Buddha equating loving kindness with the love of a mother. I had this experience when my daughter was an infant. That my wife and I went to uh, meet with this Thai uh, monk who was visiting Berkeley, and we were just in with a group. And he saw us with the baby and asked us to come forward. And he had very little English, so he was talking through a translator. And the translator turned to us and said, "This is Ajahn Jumni and he says that Ajahn says uh, metta is mother love." Uh, Okay. I was like, does that count for fathers too? <laughs> um, and I've wondered whether uh, we. Was t- I was talking about this in one group about whether meta and the word mother are kind of related etymologically. You know, the, I guess ma is one of the first sounds that uh, babies tend to make. I guess in other, in more than one language. So, um, so, uh, but. If we look at this, too, what is he saying exactly? Yeah, we can simply say, oh, he's saying metta is mother love, but what does he say? He says, even as a mother protects with her life, now, wait a minute, this isn't just like taking care of someone. It's being willing to sacrifice your life. And And it gets into that metta as protection again. So when he sent the monks back to the forest, and you know that that this would protect them from the the fairies, the tree fairies. Um, yeah. So with a boundless heart, I, I love that image, um, and radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths. So, you know, he's not. There isn't the way the Vasudhimagga kind of takes it out and breaks it out into just types of people and you're running through lists and naming people. It's not really what the Buddha is describing. He's describing this quality of radiating, of just having this openness, vast love. And we can even, uh, you know, this is a little bit of a stretch, but I'm going to make it, which is that um, He's, he's actually encouraging us to have loving kindness towards the earth itself over the entire world, upwards to the skies, downwards to the depths. So this, one of the practices that, in fact, I think we'll close with this practice at, the, at 4.30, 4.25, um, is meta for the earth. Uh, we usually call, the earth is called sometimes Mother Earth. And so we certainly can see that the Earth is our mother, that we are birthed from the Earth, so that we have come out of the Earth. right? And yet, and the Earth has protected us, nurtured us through you know, eons. And yet, today, we are not treating the Mother very well. And so I think it might be time to reverse the formula that we start to protect the mother with our loving kindness. Mm -hmm. Uh, The time for the children to take care of the the mother before she dies. Okay. freed from hatred and ill will. And now we get down to basics. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, (laughs) Free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. this is said to be the sublime abiding, so the standing or walking, seated or lying down, these are the four traditional postures in which you practice mindfulness, and in this case loving kindness uh, so he 's giving this is meditation instruction, free from drowsiness this is one of the hindrances that gets in the way of the practice of meditation practice of loving kindness. one should sustain this recollection, so the the word here. Recollection is really uh, coming, is the same word that we translate as mindfulness. One should sustain this mindfulness, mindfulness of loving kindness. So, really, here he's bl- again blending the two. Loving kindness isn't separate from mindfulness. In order to sustain our loving kindness, we must stay mindful. This is said to be the sublime abiding. That sounds good to me. I would like to abide sublimely. Uh, beautiful phrase um, where the, the Brahma Vihara is the term Brahma Vihara the heavenly abodes kind of comes from this and now there's a complete shifting in gears by not holding to fixed views the pure hearted one having clarity of vision being freed from all sense desires is not born again into this world so this you know, if you've been kind of following along and chanting or hearing the sutta, uh, this is a big shift in orientation, in tone, and apparently in the purpose. Uh, because what we thought we were trying to do up till now was basically abandon ill will. You know, wish people gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease, and then uh, let go of any anger, ill will, and radiate it out. By not holding to fixed fixed views, refers to one of the things that keeps us bound on the wheel of samsara, which is views and opinions. It's one of the things that gets transformed in the in the stages of enlightenment that one sees through fixed views, and we know. So, what this these last four lines now are shifting from doing loving kindness to orienting towards enlightenment. So it's kind of saying, when it says the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, is saying, if you purify your heart in this way, and practice in this way, you prepare yourself then for this breakthrough into awakening, into freedom, into letting go on this very profound level. So you're letting go of fixed views, you're not clinging to your ideas like, oh, I know what's right and wrong or you know, my opinions are right like you know, we should lower the taxes or we should raise the taxes or we should build this or that. No, we're not attached to that. We just, see, you know, there isn't this clinging. Clarity of vision. You know, the vision, the Buddha often talks about awakening as an experience of vision and knowledge. So there's the, the, the seeing the experience and then there's the understanding of the experience. Uh, being freed from all sense desires, something that's very appealing to in American culture. Definitely want to get rid of all of our sense desires. Um, you know, and, and but you know the Buddha again, he's just like he's very practical. It's like you know, it kind of just keeps you stuck. But so is not born again into this world, is a description of how uh, what the results. Of full enlightenment or nirvana supposedly is. And so in the Theravada Buddhist tradition, there said to be these four stages of enlightenment stream entry, once returner, non returner, arhant, or enlightened one. When you get to arhant, what happens is that you're not, you step off the cycle of reincarnation you're not born again. So the Buddha's claim or argument was that what keeps us being reincarnated, if you believe in reincarnation, but obviously that's what he taught was that you keep wanting to be, you know, existence. I want to be alive. I want to I want to exist as an ego, I want to exist as a body, I want to exist as a mind. I want to I want to stay alive. I don't want to die. And his argument was, yeah, but it never turns out well, you know. (laughs) You just never get what you are after, you know. You're after some kind of ultimate satisfaction or resolution. Oh, you know, I'll be so happy when I get married, when I get divorced, when I get this job, when I get out of this job, when my kids are born, when my kids leave the house, you know. When I get these drugs, when I stop taking these drugs, you know, it's uh, it's just an endless cycle of craving, right? And the Buddha's like, you know, and, and then you die, you know? And then you die. And the end is rarely pleasant. You know, maybe. You know, I'm still trying to figure out how to make that work. But, you know, so he's like, this is just this cycle that we create because of the illusion that somehow we're going to get there, we're going to get it, we're going to figure it out somehow, and that there isn't any it to be gotten. Sorry. He says, really, the ideal is to let go of that, and if you let go of that, grasping, that you know, you're know you done. Do I believe that? I don't, I don't believe that, I don't not believe it, because I don't believe in reincarnation, and I don't not believe in reincarnation, because I just don't remember. You know. <laughs> I keep trying to do one of those, you know, self-birth regression, whatever, things. But there's a logic to it, and that's what I appreciate. And so whether you believe it as a literal, another, you know, this body dies, and then somehow consciousness stays on and connects, or whether you think of it as, oh, right, Self is being created moment by moment, and every time I create self, I create suffering. And when I let go of that, then I can let go of suffering um, and ego death, however you want to frame it. Uh, but this is, you know, I'm just giving you the the teaching there as it is. Um, oh, there you go. <laughs> So I'm glad that you know I was able to enlighten you all today. And well, we're not done with the day, but you are done with the teachings. Are this is this is what I can give you. Um, there will uh, y- yes, there is a test. It happens on your next in breath. Yes. Maybe we should keep the microphone
6: going there, Daniel. Yeah. Thanks. I got a history question, and you don't have to answer it. It's too far off. Too far off topic. Was there a prevailing religion that Buddha was born into? Yeah,
0: the Bra- the Brahmanism. Brahmanism. Yeah, which is the precursor of Hinduism.
6: Hinduism. Okay. Yeah. And was he influenced? Do we know if he was influenced by that in, in well, ways?
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, he was brought up with that. Religion
6: yeah.
0: and his teachings are very much a um, dialogue with Brahmanism, and kind of uh, a uh, trying to show them. In some ways, you see sometimes like they they had these kind of rituals that they didn't understand; they just did them, uh, and he would explain to them kind of the metaphorical or symbolic meaning. Of their rituals, but then there were times he was like, "You guys are just like going in the wrong direction. It's over here." So he he's in dialogue with that a
6: great deal. So he didn't uh, formally or in one an event renounce it or anything like that, right?
0: Not not that I know of. I don't think there's like a moment like that. But the thing is that there were so you had Brahmanism was like the um, the established. Religion—it was the one that you know you would go to temple or whatever—and and and, and, but then there was this whole other sort of alternative world of these ascetics who lived in the forests, who and and there was this big kind of movement for people who were seeking after some kind of enlightenment, and um, you know there were many different gurus. And competing kind of gurus, uh, who were uh, all of them were kind of operating outside the bra- brahmanical form, and kind of bringing more, much more of a sort of experiential teachings. But also, they would have like different philosophies and things that they would expound. And the Buddha would encounter them. You you read about it all the time that he's encountering Brahmins and other and people from other sects who have beliefs like. You know, everything is preordained, or uh, how many you know uh, cycles of uh, the world being recreated, and um, and it, and it, you know, there's no particular reason to think that Buddhism would have uh, sort of survived as the the, had been the surviving religion had it not been for King Ashoka, who uh, came along a couple hundred years after the Buddha. And uh, at the, you know by then there, there were still all these kind of competing religions and philosophies, and King Ashoka, who uh, took over and turned mu- much of India into one empire, um... Was converted to Buddhism and he made it the state religion. Okay. And so that kind of raised its profile and its importance, and that's really why it survived. Not necessarily because the Buddha was the, there might have been some better guru that we don't know about. I don't know. It's a terrible thought. <laughs> um, but, uh, and King Ashoka's. Son and daughter actually ordained, and they went to Sri Lanka and they established Buddhism in Sri Lanka. And again, that's why uh, Buddhism survived the the uh, invasions in the 12th century from, from Islam.
6: Did the Brahmins include or provide for a, a single god like the Christians, or not?
0: They're they're in, no they they're, they're uh, th- like Hinduism. They believe in multiple gods. The Buddha b- believes believed in multiple gods but he didn't see them and and th- in buddhism there are gods but they're really just they are imp- they live impermanent lives <laughs> so they aren't gods in our term they're more what i would call like angels in a way i mean they appear and they and they live they became i don't want yeah okay i've got time to talk about this they they basically they like if like say if you practice this loving kindness all the time and you really purify your mind just get to the point where you're just like this, you know, beautiful mind and heart and then you die you're reincarnated in this like really nice place and you, but it's, and it's these different heaven realms, they're kind of like there isn't like a physical body, it's like a body of light or you know, anytime you have a thought of, of a desire for, you know, like for something it just appears and and but and you live for a long time like 60,000 years or something but then you die and and y- it's hard to get enlightened there because it's so pleasant that you ha- don't have any motivation to practice now, this is one of the kind of things you learn in the tibetans particularly where they talk about the precious human birth that that the human existence is perfect for enlightenment because it's just enough pain and just enough uh, 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 intelligence and, and and consciousness in the animal realm there's physically it 's a lot like the human realm only there 's no uh, the consciousness isn 't high enough to be able to you know be mindful and practice and uh, and then and then in the heaven realms uh, there 's not enough pain to motivate you so it 's like if I f- if this is so great why sh-? and they don 't realize that their lives are impermanent because they live for so long they never see anybody die. Uh, whereas we see that right so but but you see in the suttas the these these gods and devas, angels, whatever, will come to hear the Buddha teach because they realize like in the, some of them at least realize that, oh, this is impermanent, or I should listen to him because he 's really wise and and some of them get enlightened through, uh, through listening to him there 's one, one of my favorite scenes in one of the suttas is where the the Buddhist saying: oh, "You people in the front, you need to get out of the way because the the devas can't see, and they're really getting mad that you're blocking. It's like <laughs> down in front, you know. <laughs> like what the devas? Why don't they just like can't they like move around? I don't know. So yeah, it's it's interesting to get into all that. I mean, it, but it's mostly, you know, academic. Thank you. Well." All right, so I really appreciate you people coming and hanging out today and sticking in through this I, I hope it's helpful uh it's It's helpful for me as I said i'm working on writing on these topics and uh and it's really helpful to hear your questions and your feedback and uh, try to refine what i 'm what i'm saying um, i I just think i mean obviously I'm pretty like uh, engaged with this stuff. I find it pretty uh exciting and uh I like to think that uh it's gonna be useful if I publish it, although I might die on the way home so but hopefully the text would be saved uh, it's on it's on uh Bo- box.com so <laughs> we could help make sure it's, it's edited um, you just have to be prepared I think it's just for the worst <laughs> yes and
3: I'm not even Jewish so you know <laughs> Yeah. Um, in terms of of
5: when you're feeling whatever, anxious or angry, or uh, it's a loving kindness, um, t- breathing that in, and then breathing out peace, mm-hmm. and in a way, uh,
0: tonglen, yeah. yeah. It's called tonglen, the tonglen. practice of breathing. you breathing in the yeah, but it's more about compassion for be other beings where. The, where you're trying to, you take in all the negativity of the world and then you breathe out love, which is just the opposite of what most people want to do, right? Mm -hmm. Most people are like, well, let me breathe in love and breathe out all my negativity. Mm -hmm. But so Tonglen is a pretty radical practice. It's a Tibetan practice, so. Mm -hmm.
5: And and do you find that in the practice of loving kindness that you find that valuable or potentially damaging because you're,
0: Actively breathing. Oh, yeah, you know, really. I mean, if you believe in like energy or whatever, oh, getting polluted. Um, I, I haven't done that practice. You know, it's, it's not, uh, I just haven't done it. I don't really do Tibetan practice. So, the, uh, this isn't uh, what you asked, but it's something I thought of when you started to ask your question, so I'm going to say it, which <laughs> is um, the, in Berkeley, the, the Berkeley Buddhist Monastery, the some uh, Theravada nuns visit each month, and uh, and one of them uh, was asked a few months ago about how she practiced loving kindness and what her emphasis was, and she said, kind of what I do is when I'm Feeling some really p- painful or difficult emotion, I send loving kindness I do loving kindness for that feeling mm. I thought I liked that a lot it was like kind because that seemed like loving kindness for myself that wasn 't about may I be happy, but rather was kind of almost a kindness to the suffering if that makes any sense it 's like the feeling itself is like uh, to, how can I be kind to that emotion? And, uh, because a lot of what our real struggle with emotion is, is our reaction to our emotions. Like, oh, why am I feeling this way? I hate feeling this way. What's wrong with me? And instead of taking that kind of adversarial relationship to my emotions, to have, bring, to have this feeling of kindness towards, oh, you know, it's held in the arms of love, like holding my emotions like, oh... Yeah, you're sad. Sadness. Oh. You know, anxiety, oh. Yeah. Let me give you love. Can I be kind to that? And I not fight with you, just allow you, yes. You're 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 visiting. You know. This is who's visiting right now. I need to welcome you in some way. Speaking of roomy, in the get on oh, the guest house. Yeah.
5: Thank you.
1: Yeah.
0: All right. Let me uh, lead you in this short uh, meta for the earth practice um, okay, speaking of which it's it's having fun today it's getting watered
5: if we are not going to survive the earth, the earth will survive us so. If we destroy the Earth, we are really just destroying ourselves. And I'm sure i, I can't, can't hear should, you very oh, well. Oh, I'm sorry. No, I was saying, um, in terms of the Earth, um, the notion that you know that we can destroy the Earth. Really, what we're doing is destroying ourselves. Because yeah. Mother right. Earth.
0: Yeah. I, the best thing we could do from the Earth is kill ourselves off. Right. I mean. The, <laughs> I mean, just you know, I mean, it would just grow back. Right. It's like get a haircut. You know, it would grow back out. Yeah, but remember one day the sun is going to explode, so then. (laughs) Just speaking of impermanence, you know. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I don't know how quick that'll be. I think it'll probably expand and we'll be, before it explodes, we'll be burned up. Cheeriness. I just, I come here radiating kindness over the entire world. Upwards to the skies, downwards to the depths, (laughs) outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. All right, one more time to practice together. Metta for the earth. You can kind of let these words move through you as though you were speaking to yourself or you might Repeat them to yourself if that's not a burden. Let's see
3: what feels right here. Breathing into my
0: heart, I feel my connection to the air that surrounds and protects me.
3: Breathing into my heart, I
0: feel my connection to the air that surrounds and protects me.
3: Breathing out of my heart,
0: I radiate love to the air.
3: I see it protected and healed. Breathing out of my heart, I radiate love to the air,
0: I see it protected and healed.
3: The sky is bright and blue, the air precious and pure. Breathing into my heart, I feel my connection to the earth beneath me. Breathing into my heart,
0: I feel my connection to the earth beneath me.
3: Breathing out of my heart, I radiate love down into the earth.
0: I see it protected and healed.
3: Breathing out of my heart, I radiate
0: love down into the earth. I see it
3: protected and healed. The earth is vibrant, green and fragrant with life. Breathing into my heart,
0: I feel my connection to the sea, from which all life
3: arises. Breathing into my heart,
0: I feel my connection to the sea, from which all life arises.
3: Breathing out of my heart, I radiate
0: love to the sea. I
3: see it protected and healed. Breathing out of my heart,
0: I radiate love to the sea
3: and see it protected and healed. The sea is clear blue, bright, and shining. I hold the entire planet
0: and all living beings in my heart with love, care, and compassion. I hold the entire planet and all living beings in my heart with love,
3: care, and compassion. May this planet be safe. May it be healed. May it be free from suffering. And may we enjoy the rain as it falls. It's kind of beautiful
0: being blown across the land here. So I appreciate you all coming today again. um, My teaching uh, schedule is available on my website, kevingriffin.net. Easy to find. You can also email me anytime. Um, I have a regular monthly class here the second Friday. Of each month and a regular class in Berkeley the fourth Tuesday which this month will be the 28th. Um, I also teach retreats of uh, various lengths uh, up to five days. Uh, the next one is in June in at Cloud Mountain in southern Washington so if you're interested in doing more of a sitting retreat please join me for that. Um, and uh i will be in sacramento on in uh april ninth that's nice and of course back here the seventeenth and ninth to the nineteenth um lots of books and uh oh the thing that i i knew i wanted to mention um that page said at the beginning of the day the day was being recorded dharma seed d h a r m a s e e d dot org there's more Dharma talks than you could probably listen to in your life, not just from me, from all the teachers here and around the country. But uh, so, if you want to hear any of this again, uh, or suggest someone else hear it, uh, probably be a few days or so before it's up. But uh, you can listen to it and uh, other talks for free there. So, please be careful. All things are impermanent.
1: Did you want to take this?
3: Excuse me.